Dustin Color is here to stay. But what I'm even more excited about, once everybody will have every piece of every color variation, we will finally enter a new design era. A new Gerald Janta, Albert Gilbert, Rupert Emerson, all these legendary designers. When you think about it, color variations is the last trick you have in your hat when, when you have milked the design. What else can you do once you've done the full rainbow? Creative like us will get to, to express themselves and, and to try new things. And I think it would be absolutely fantastic. This week, we add the U to color because we speak the Queen's English. Oh, the Queen. Wonder why some brands treat watch lovers the way they do. And Sylvain gives us the A to Z of his own watch brand. Yeah, I know that didn't work, but you know, you start down a path and anyway, enjoy the show. Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly. We have four people on the team this morning. Myself, Rick. We have Ariel. Say good morning, Ariel. Hello, everyone. Say good morning, David. Good morning, everyone. And David, you don't sound very good morning. You don't sound morning fresh there. Uh, I am actually morning fresh. Uh, I've been awake for like two hours, but you know, it just drags on. That's how it is. That's how mornings are. <laughs> That's what it's But we are joined, of course, by our favourite... I, I, I mean, he is a guest host, but he's almost reached the status of just host because he's been on so often. Sylvain Bernaron, who is sort of from Brightline, but when he's on the show, he's not really. How are you, Sylvain? Hi. Hi, everybody. Good morning. A great to, pleasure to be here again. And are you well? Yes, yes. Good, uh, good. Like David, in my in my drag zone in the morning, trying to figuring stuff out, but uh, <laughs> happy to talk with you guys. Excellent, excellent. Now, you had your own Watches and Wonders experience, Sylvan, with Breitling, who were doing stuff in and around Geneva. You presumably kept an eye on what was going on. I'm really keen to hear the opinion of someone who is actually a creative director in the watch industry as to what he thought about the watches and whether he thought there were any actual wonders. So you may have heard us speak or not about Watches and Wonders so far, but what did you think? Uh, overall, I'm extremely happy. I think it was a great year for the watch industry as a whole. Uh, as an enthusiast, I see... Uh, a tremendous acceleration in the interest of watches. And I think this is driven by uh, the post-COVID situation and the environment crisis, so to speak, that uh, overall luxury goods get more traction these days. And that brings, uh, I could see in Geneva, more people than any other year. And and from uh, high-end collectors, press, retailers, and also new guys. For example, when I went to Geneva in the train, I was with four Swedish people who just landed in Zurich and they were going to to, to Geneva for the, the full week because they planned to meet some independents and, and, and stuff like this. So some, it was very interesting to see how much interest uh, watches seems to have these days. Uh, then in the watch market itself, I, I see two phenomenons. First, it's the explosion of the big brands such as uh, Rolex, Breitling, Omega, IWC, uh, all these large-scale brands and Tudor, of course, seem to have more traction than ever. This is probably thanks to the new watch enthusiasts, I believe, who, who get in the game. Uh, and as a consequence of that, uh, more educated collectors seem to be pushed further in, into the, the the journey. And that translates into also an explosion uh, of traction uh, for high-end independence. Uh, I've never seen so many. I think it's the same for you guys. Every second week, you see a new 50G's watch being made from scratch from a new uh, independence. It's uh, it's unprecedented, in my opinion. We have we have a, we have a gold rush happening. That's sort of what it is. Yeah, but it's it's uh, I'm 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 very pleased to 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 see such an explosion of creativity and craftsmanship. And I think overall, it's it's going to make some damage, of course, because not everyone can sustain that that pace. But uh, overall, I think for for the industry. The companies involved, the employees, uh, and and from a more philosophic standpoint, um, if high-end craftsmanship uh, is the future of humanity, I'm all up for it. You know, because we are so many on, on the planet, everybody needs to have a job, and artificial intelligence is not, in my opinion, a solution <laughs> to do that. 
So if, if humans can go uh, and dedicate their, their, their time to, to do craftsmanship, I think it, it's fantastic. Talking about the explosion of independence, Sylvan, why don't you tell us about the explosion of your own independent watch? It's a bit of a, <laughs> it's a, bit of a uh, you know, secret that everybody knows, but I got to see another version another update of the watch that you're producing under your own name where is that mm-hmm. up to just now folk can maybe go to at Berneron on instagram to see some some images and some clues but where are you actually up to yourself yeah so, so just as an introduction I, i'm currently operating as as the creative director for brightling i'm not super uh planning to stop that i'm very happy to work for brightling and my ceo george Cairn had the kindness and the modernity to give me 20 percent of my time to express myself uh, in a free area so to speak because uh, big brands have strong constraints in terms of technique production um, and the spectrum of things you can do because i'm here to serve brightling as i always said now I have 20% of my time. I'm allowed to do something under my own name. I'm not planning to work with any other watch brand, just to be clear. And I'm venturing into, into a strong and unusual creative uh, route, so to speak, trying to make a watch that has no axis of symmetry, no straight lines, uh, which is entirely inspired by the Fibonacci sequence, so also known as the golden ratio. Uh, and I try to do a nice blend of art and technique uh, using, for example, a shape movement. So I'm, I'm developing a movement from scratch, which is not round. And I use the asymmetry in the movement, for example, to fit a bigger barrel. So uh, escaping from a round base plate allows me to increase the performance of the movement, making it thinner. I'm also making a full gold piece like we used to do in the 20s, 30s, 40s. Uh, where the movement, the dial, the case, the hands, everything is made out of gold, uh, except for for some pinions. So, of course, uh, high-end collectors and and people like yourselves, uh, experts, already know about this project because I've been working on it for almost a year now. The movement is finished, uh, and I was in Geneva uh, in the evenings showing it to friends and then we had the pleasure to meet rick of mm-hmm. course um, and overall i got great feedback and i'm planning to reveal my design probably in september uh, and to clarify i will make only the less than 25 pieces uh, at the first batch so we are talking super niche uh, super special pieces i'm very much aware that this is not for everybody uh, but the goal of, of this project is basically to venture into the unknown. If you have the, the, the watch market as a circle, I'm trying to make a little bubble on the side just to, I'm basically trying to get closer to the edge to have a, a better panorama, better view, so to speak. But it's also very risky uh, because, for example, making gold-shaped movements if I don't sell them, it's not like I can reuse it uh, into another watch because it, the, the movement is bespoke to the case and you don't want to trash gold movements. Yeah. So the risk involved is extremely high, but I'm willing to do these sacrifices to put myself in a position to potentially achieve uh, some things that uh, nobody has achieved before. So, so that's pretty much the recipe of the operation. Well, myself and David have seen the watch. Ariel, have you also seen what Sylvan's planning? Yeah, uh, he's privately showed me a lot. I think it's great. And, you know, listening to him talk about risk, you know, it's sort of like to have a person in, you know, in Swiss watchmaking uh, country versus an American talk about risk. It's two totally different things, the appetite for risk. (laughs) And, you know, so often you hear about these fears, but you know you have a nice watch. You said yourself, you know people are going to buy it. I mean, there's much riskier things you could do. If you like been like, Ariel, I made the most beautiful table. Should I make it? I'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know anything about that market. Do you? You made something in a market you really, really know. So yes, it's going to be expensive for you to do. But I think the reality is that so many people like yourself are doing this because it's perceived as relatively low risk because there's an appetite for beauty. And as long as you know how to make something beautiful, you have a really good chance of selling it. 
No, that's very encouraging. Thank you. I mean, when I, when I wake up, because I mean, you are more than anybody knows that the financial aspect involves like developing a movement and producing it. The bare minimum is like half a million. And then, and, and so, I mean, I'm scared because on my private level, I'm throwing like 15 years of hard savings into this project and it's not. Hey, worst case scenario, because it is a really nice watch, people will discover it in about 30 years from now. So you don't, you don't have to be poor for that long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so I go bankrupt first, die under you a bridge. You will be and discovered, okay? Gets... It'll be a fantastic <laughs> comeback story. <laughs> like, a, like a Van Gogh way of life, yeah? Yeah, <laughs> yeah but we, we, we bring Ariel along to these meetings for his words of encouragement. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff good stuff no really looking forward to seeing i mean i've seen the models uh in the flesh but really looking forward to actually seeing it working on the wrist hopefully the first ones later this year in kind of full prototype and obviously there'll be a massive discount code available at blogtowatch.com when you launch uh if necessary pay, use, use the a blog to watch discount code to pay five percent more just as a sylvan uh, yeah. emergency fund <laughs> So look out for that. Okay, let's move along. Ariel, you have written an article about colour. Now, I'll forgive you the fact that there are three people on this podcast who I believe would spell colour with a U. Would you guys, David, Sylvan, would you put a U in the English derivation of colour? No. As opposed to this American one with the no U? Uh, it's been removed from my I think, system. I think I would. Yeah, there you go. So color. <laughs> my God, really? Yeah, I mean, that's what they told me at school, Ariel. I'm sorry. Yeah. Look, I, <laughs> I didn't know you had a problem with our U-less way of doing it until this conversation. So if you want me to start writing it with a U, I'll try to, to develop that habit if that would make you happy. <laughs> it's just that we are being taught the English English <laughs> at school. Uh, it's these things that are important. An article about color and what's coming to dominate, etc. David, what's your favorite watch color with or without a U? Uh, oh, oh God. Any, well, <laughs> yellow. I, I will go with yellow. I like a yellow dial You watch. put yourself back on mute if you like. <laughs> <laughs> just go, go and think about it some more. No, it's just a difficult question and it, it matters, okay? <laughs> and uh -huh. and uh, yeah, I would go with, with yellow. I'm into orange these days as well. Anything that pops, really. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, so, Ariel, tell us about your conclusions or not lack thereof, but just about the direction that you think the world is going in terms of color and watches. The article is really about collecting. And we tend to tell people a lot of ways not to collect watches. And this is sort of a hint of how to collect. And having a collection of watches which represents the different types of colors that you like or wear, I think you shouldn't have to have a favorite color. That's why you can have multiple watches in different colors is like a really acceptable way of building a, a, a collection. Like, you know, I wasn't looking for another watch, but I didn't have a blue dial yet. It's a good reason to get one. So I think that in terms of developing a collection, one way, one angle of looking at it, aside from, you know, case materials and case shapes and brands or styles is, do I have a dial or do I have a case in that color? And it's interesting to think about what are those colors I'll be wanting to wear for many years? What are those colors that, you know, just might look stupid two years from now? Because I think from a fashion perspective, everyone has at least some experience of getting something which was cool at the time. And then they look back and they're like, oh, my God, what was I thinking? And, you know, I think that happens sometimes and watches are more expensive than most fashion items. So I think people are like, am I going to want like, you know, the baby blue dial two years from now? And so it's interesting to discuss what the classics are going to be because a classic color, which you know most shades of blue now are, is something that I'm okay getting it because I know I'll wear it. And so I think that's really where it comes down to. It's also a discussion about what's going to be coming out on the horizon from brands. Where are they going to be putting their investment? Look, a couple of years ago, you saw almost no red dials of any kind. You saw almost no green dials. You saw black dials, silver dials, some white dials blue was kind of coming in like it was a relatively limited palette and now it seems like you know sky's the limit and the reality is 
the industry has already tried every single color for the most part. There's materials and colors that weren't available before, but it's not like anyone's inventing a shade of blue or yellow or, or, ye- or, or anything like that. And so the question is, what's a color which is going to stand the test of time? I argue that a maroon uh, style of red is, but maybe a bright red is not in terms of a watch style color. Um, most shades of blue are good. A uh, green now, which again was seen as a very strange color, Color for a watch dial just a few years ago uh you know the the, the rolex a submariner with the green dial was a flop it was called ugly a lot of nasty things were said about it and now everyone's like well of course you have to get the rolex with the green dial so we've come a long way and i try to do an analysis on what colors are here to stay and and what might be a temporary fad i don't think for example in a couple of years men are going to be wearing hot pink watch dials i just that's that's not going to happen in my opinion so, Sylvan, as someone who's obviously very, very involved in the in the watch industry, what drives the colors that you would be looking at for watches? Is it driven from outside the watch world? Is it driven by looking at what everybody else is doing? Or are you able to, if you like, invent what you want the next range of colors to be and actually drive the movement of a new range of colors without external influence at all? We use color from, from two different angles. First of all, I thought uh, IL's uh, article was very accurate. And, and we use colors from two angles. As I said, one is a brand building perspective. IL uh, mentioned in his articles that uh, the digital space is so overcrowded these days that you need some sort of uh, talking piece to to extract yourself out of the crowd and get some sort of attention, which is why now you see not only we do it at Breitling, but many other brands do it. You want in your assortment some sort of halo piece that, that can uh, get traction for a group of more conservative pieces that would otherwise on their own not get uh, attention, digital attention especially. Uh, but nonetheless, these species are the ones that uh, drive the sales and because they are more versatile and, and more efficient uh, on, on a daily using scenario. So that's one aspect, the, the talking pieces, so to speak. And the second aspect, especially from my design perspective, I think color can be used as an accelerator to emphasize your design. By that I mean, for example, I will use an example and a counter example. If you use a, if you want a modern sports watch, color is a great way to display dynamism and also increase readability on your dial. And therefore, to me, a bright colored dial for a sports watch is extremely important and, and probably only what makes it complete uh, because the color uh, participates in, in the completeness of, of the piece, if I can say. On the other hand, if you have a dress watch, very thin, if it can only survive because you have this fancy red dial, it may mean that, that your, your design is not strong enough to, to, to survive on its own. Uh, so this is, that's my personal take on color. Uh, I, I think the more formal is, is the piece, the, the less colorful it should be to start with, uh, which is why, for example, on my watch, I start with this monochromatic takes of, of gold shades because I want to isolate the design and see how it works on its own because color would actually be a distraction in this case. And on, on sport watches, it's the opposite. You want color because it helps. So, David, your thoughts on what is driving the market in terms of color? Are we are we just in the world of colorful watches? You are the rainbow guy on this show, so to speak. Is that just the future? Everything's just going to get more and more colorful? Well, I hope so. Uh, the reason why I'm the rainbow guy <laughs> is because I freaking love rainbows, although I know Aria loves them very much on the watches as well. Rainbows and David, rainbows and unicorns. Yeah, well, unicorns, maybe not so much, <laughs> but, 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 but rainbows for sure, especially on indices and, and, and stones and stuff. I really liked what Silva mentioned about 
the digital presentation and presence of the watch and how color plays an important role in that. I mean, our brains are basically fried at this point by Instagram and doom scrolling and, you know, two second impulses. So imagine putting out a great looking watch with a black dial, you know, that, that is basically, it could be an iconic design or something like that. But okay, so what's gonna stand out to you more when you're scrolling? Is it like a black dial Navi timer or something with a turquoise dial or a red dial or something like that, right? So of course it's going to be a louder color, so to speak. And so for this reason, I don't, I don't see this going away, especially not because it's not a trend to have black dial watches. They have always been around and they will always be around. So. I'm not sure when we will be talking about the revolution of a black dial watch. <laughs> I think they will just continue to exist, but colors are still on the rise and that's a good thing. But is it like, you know, brands that make small watches? There's always this thing that, uh, yeah, you make the watch in a couple of different sizes and then when you go along to look at it, you always just buy the bigger one. And then you complain that they don't make it small enough. <laughs> is it the same with colors that people see the bright color and that attracts them to it digitally, but when they actually go in, they just buy the one in black or white or navy blue. Are people actually buying colorful watches or is it just that brands are using them as these kind of digital markers to get their heads above the, the rest of the crowd? Oh, I think they're buying them. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody had it. Every pilot. The three of us jump on it like crazy. <laughs> like, go, go. Sylvan first. <laughs> yeah, because I'm the guest, guys. Let yeah, me yeah. speak first, all right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have one example. I had this discussion at dinner with a friend the other day. He said, Oh, I've seen the new Oris Kermit. Have you uh -huh. seen this? It's a pilot yeah. watch. Uh, yes. Lemon green dial with, with the frog on the date wheel. And it was like, Oh, I, I just don't get it. And I let him complain about it for five minutes. And I said, well, would you have even noticed the piece, the, the whole collection without that particular reference? And then he got it. And I said, look, I think it's a brilliant marketing trick from, from Oris. They might sell a, a few hundreds of these, not even. But this piece alone actually created a lot of traction for the entire collection and, and the brand also. It's actually a great leverage project to, to yeah, create traction on the whole line. Uh, for us, for example, at Breitling, we have the, the Corvette red top-time dial, uh, which is not the best performing product, but nonetheless has such a strong visual impact uh, online and, and, and it works. It works very well. And then on, on the long run, I think I agree with Ariel and David. I think color is here to stay. We will have a few years of color variations of, of every kind. But what I'm even more excited about is that once everybody will have every piece of every color variation, we will finally enter what I've been waiting for for the past 10 years, which is, I hope, a new design era. I think we will get to leave us, our generation of watch enthusiasts, a new Gerald Janta, Albert Gilbert, Rupert Emerson, all these legendary designers. Sylvain uh, we'll get to No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't produced anything yet, but <laughs> I, I, I hope we will, because uh, when you think about it, color variations is the last trick you have in your hat when, when you have milked the design, so to speak. What, what else can you do once you've done the full rainbow stones, uh, fancy You might need to make something sapphire. new. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's going to be nice. Ariel, because creative like us will get to, to express themselves and, and to try new things. And I think it would be absolutely fantastic for, for the industry. So what do you think of that, David, that actually color is just the last hurrah of lack of imagination? in terms of new design <laughs> i wouldn't look at it that way but that, that's a funky way to 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 approach the uh the issue for sure hmm. um i don't think so i think people are craving established designs big time and they're voting for them with their with their hard-earned money it's not like everyone's out there like i'm not buying a watch unless it's crazy and totally new no what everyone wants is established iconic uh, collections and references and whatnot. And the fact that we can stretch them to a new color is already a big achievement. And once the market is ready, that's when, that's when creativity will thrive once again in terms of design. I'm gonna get this a little bit deeper uh, because I think that, that there's an interesting point being brought up here. Another way of looking at it is that consumers are demanding popular products 
that have high resale value. And when the only way is to have that is to have the same generation product made year after year with minor differences, such that the older one is almost as valuable as the latest one. And it has to do with people not being really able to see, is the older one the newer one or <clears throat> is it the same thing? So consumers, especially today, viciously demand this. Oh, the resale value has to stay high. And I think there's a lot of interesting reasons why they do this, but I'm not sure if it's very wise. And brands are very concerned about giving consumers what they want. That's ideally what they need to be doing. So I think it needs to begin with consumers willing to be more risky, which will then translate into these brands doing the risky stuff that we like. And it really boils down to, I don't care if it loses value after I buy it. I'm not saying I have a solution, but I think that's a big part of the problem. Well, go and engage with Ariel's article at blogtowatch.com and give us your opinion. Geneva-based watchmaker Raymond Vile invites you to discover the beautiful Caliber RW1212 automatic movement. Designed exclusively for Raymond Vial in Switzerland, the RW1212 features an exposed balance wheel symmetrically positioned on the dial under a traditional watchmaker's bridge. Inspired by the world's great musical composers and instrumentalists, Raymond Vial harmoniously integrates the RW1212 movement into a family of products that now also includes the visually captivating RW1212 skeleton. Raymond Vial is a family-owned and operated company that for more than 45 years has been celebrating independent watchmaking for enthusiasts everywhere. Visit Raymond-Wild.com to see more. Okay, Ariel, we missed out in this story last week because I forgot to ask, but tell us about the experience of Watches and Wonders and the Deer stand of Chanel. There was a stand... There was very little colour involved in it, as per our previous conversation. It was all black and white. Do you think the monochrome outlook of the watch in the stand led to the interactions that we had? Oh, my God. I don't even know what, like, <laughs> is diplomatically okay to say, right? Because we do value our relationship with Chanel. And I like Chanel a lot, but they had a lot of, like... A lot went wrong at their booth. Like, a lot went wrong. I think the funniest <laughs> thing that went wrong is, okay, this is a trade show... There was some, you know, record amount of people there. It was a popular show, yet their stand was so fragile they had to guard it around. They had to make sure people didn't enter it. And when you did, it was like, don't roll your luggage, lift it up and check it in here. I'm surprised they didn't make us take our shoes off. They had this big white carpet. I'm like, like you've been to trade shows before, Chanel. This isn't a brand new thing for you. Like, why would you make a booth which is just, you're so afraid of getting it dirty where you're trying to let people in and then i think they 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 were only they were only officially showing watches to press like the first two or three days and you know i'm sorry chanel isn't like one of our top you know brands to meet in terms of traffic they don't have a lot of men's watches they had one uh the monsieur that we actually helped them debut a few years ago and we went there sort of later in the show, and even though they knew us, they're like, "Yeah, we can't, we can't show it to you." And they like had to call Paris, and it was, it was this weird ordeal where like the watchers are right there, and we could have just taken it and shot it. And I, I guess I should have just done that, but it's like this, this super strange, like quasi-military level of rigidity. And it turned out that we couldn't shoot their new watches, not because we didn't show up, not because the watches weren't there, but because there was a chain of command confusion issue. And we're all standing around, even with half of the Chanel employees, like is this is like a humiliating thing. And I had to let the Chanel people know that it was humiliating. And it's it just it made them look so incredibly inept and backwards and and as though their goals uh end up shooting themselves in the foot that I thought we were just like, well, at least we still have things to laugh about at these shows, right? <laughs> I mean, David, you missed the denouement of this uh, engagement. I think you'd wandered off to the bathroom or somewhere. But we were literally gathered around this case on the Chanel stand. The case is open, <laughs> so you can actually go <laughs> right into the case and lift the watches out. And they wouldn't let us take them out of the case 
just into the corner, which was literally three and a half feet away, so that you could take photographs of them against the white background, because you couldn't take good photographs of them sitting in the case. And it was like one of those memes you see. I don't know if you've got this equivalent meme in Europe and elsewhere, where you have like 10 British guys all looking down a hole at the hard-working European worker who's down the hole actually doing the work. Hmm. We were like all gathered around this case looking at this watch, debating the whys and wherefores of, we really want to photograph this watch. We really want to speak about this watch. But you need to let us take out the case to do either of these things. Why won't you let us do this? And it was like, oh, no, we can't let you do that. We can't let you do that. Wow. No, 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 can't let you do that. And they were no, terrified. They there. were all oh, just absolutely, absolutely. terrified. <laughs> yeah, it was really peculiar. But, I mean, and the idea that it's a press and trade show event all week, but for Chanel, it's only so a press I, I, event for I'll the first you, three I'll days. I'll tell you another story. <laughs> so years ago, I was in Paris and I, I had a meeting with Chanel and there was this issue about where to meet. And like, even though we went to the building where their office was from, like they couldn't figure out within their own policies, like where to meet or how to meet their office. So we had to meet like at a coffee shop downstairs. In, like, Paris. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, like you go all the way there. You're at the building with the Chanel office. I can't quite make it inside. I have to meet outside and have an awkward meeting. And it was like a bunch of these Chanel people and they're like regulation Chanel outfits sitting there. And it was, it was a fine meeting. And again, I, I admire a lot of the brand does, but like, it's a weird thing that like the French idea of how to run like a military unit just seemed to go straight to the luxury industry. It's the weirdest thing. And like, I've seen bits and pieces of it before, but it's a really awkward thing that there's this weird, like rule through fear where there's like these dominant personalities that again, there's not, there's no rhyme or reason behind it, but they just everyone working for them is scared to death to be arbitrarily fired for for some weird reason it's just and and it's it robs them of being able to get good i mean i'm a chanel watch owner right like i i like their stuff and it's just it's it's a hilarious thing that you know at a trade show when everyone's there they just they can't quite seem to figure it out and i, I again as media what what do we do with this information someone at chanel needs to know and I don't want anyone at the at the booth to get in trouble because I guess to the best of their ability, they were trying to do their job. I don't know. How did you see it? I'm, I'm really not sure. I mean, a, a lot of this sounds very self-inflicted from the brand and it's just the internal uh, grievances and, and frictions and all that. It's it's nuts. I think, you know, on reflection, they, they will do this uh, differently next year because they were a standout even, you know, when you have Patek next door, basically, and, and the other ones who are, you know, uh, traditionally very difficult. You know, Chanel was in a league of its own this year. Uh, yeah. Maybe it was just a fluke. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Anyway, so just to let you know that all experiences did not go as smoothly as we may sometimes the impression it's, there's always got to be one every single year it's not really a european watch show without having like a nice dose of just some type of pretension or insane snobbery or it, it's misguided no one actually wins but someone has to feel bad right you can't someone needs to feel as though they they shouldn't be there or they're asking too much or they they're too late why why couldn't you guys just been at this exact same spot 72 hours ago when everything else was equal but in this in this specific time that it was allowed even, even though we're still at the same trade show and this is to meet media <laughs> at tremendous expense <laughs> yeah it was just it was uh it's it, it just it's it's funny and again you don't really see these things i mean once in a while you go into the luxury boutique right i think a lot of consumers have this they'll go into a, especially a modern brand boutique and they'll have a bad experience and they'll walk out thinking i bet the guy or the gal that runs this company or that owns it or whatever like i bet they didn't want me to have that experience i bet that they're they would be super horrified to learn that i just walked out of their store with this feeling like they wouldn't want that yet that's exactly what happened i think that that inadvertently uh luxury irritates or or outright offends so many people unnecessarily i, I mean just not to harp on about it but the funniest thing was standing back watching you as the 
loud American against these very prim and proper French people just going toe to toe on why you should or why you should not be allowed to do what you wanted to do. How'd I do? It was very, you did very well. I mean, it was a score draw because at the end of the day, you didn't get to take the watches out of the, the case to photograph them. So you didn't win in that sense. I, I could have pushed si- harder. I just wanted them to I, feel really dumb. Yeah. I, I, I mean, because the cases were open, you could literally just have reached in and lifted out. I'm not sure what would have happened. I think they would probably have been paralyzed in shock that <laughs> someone had been that disobedient. And so absolutely nothing would have happened. But, you know, there was a six foot six burly security guard there somewhere. You so just, you know, you, never you just know. explained it to me. I figured out what happens there. They train all the people there that this stuff is not only way more valuable, but more important than any of the people working at the company. That That explains it. 2023 marks 25 years of Urwork, a brand from Baumgartner and Fry with the ambition to challenge auteur lingerie with new ideas and modern technologies, making art that tells time. 2011 brought the brand's first pocket watch or sight device, the UR1001. Not only does this feature a new calendar system using a satellite complication, but under the panel on the back of the timepiece there's a 5-year oil change indicator showing when a service is due, as well as a 100-year indicator and a 1,000-year indicator registering the total running time of the movement. For more, search for Urwork at blogtowatch.com or follow at Urwork Geneva on Instagram. Here's a brand that gets not a lot of love, especially not nowadays, but they've come up with five new watches and reading the comment section of a blog to watch, I'm almost feeling like I'm in a parallel universe because largely folk are responding quite well to these. And this is five new watches from Frank Mueller. Ariel, give us a history of the brand Frank Mueller. Because it gets some kicking from time to time. Explain, explain its background. Why is it, why why is it in this position that it gets such a lot of grief from time to time? Uh, yeah, look, I mean, Frank Mueller is in a lot of ways an incredible company that did a lot of things first, and by the time they sort of got tired of it, that's when the world started to appreciate it. So they're very much ahead of their time when it came to a lot of the um, whimsical movements and certain shapes. Uh, they, you know, they they popularized the Tonneau shape, which was then adopted by Richard Mille, which is 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 now you know uh, synonymous with them. Um, so there's a lot of things they did first. There's the man Frank Muller, and then he had some people come in, um, and they have this place called Watchland in in Geneva, which is where uh, their brand is. And they've had a couple of brands. It's a little group. Um, not all those brands are in operation right now, but Kustos and Baxton Strauss um, are, are two of the noteworthy other brands that they have under their uh, umbrella. And they, you know, we don't tend to see a lot of them. Um, they've they've sort of waxed and waned over the years. They'll have like a boutique. We actually helped uh, them launch a boutique here in Los Angeles with their partner Feldmar a couple of years back, which was great. That was right before the pandemic. So I, I, they they've done nice things, but it's it's again one of the strangest of the brands because they don't seem to have a consistent business model. They sort of come to come and go with the tide of the economy um but again they have this great it's like one of the best places to like get married in geneva i swear if you could get it done at Watchland, that'd be cool <laughs> so van did you get married at Watchland? no no i did not <laughs> <laughs> have you been there it's a good venue for that right with the view and everything yeah 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 it's fantastic but uh um, Will you get Matt when when you spend all your family savings on your watch and the inevitable happens? Will you get married the next time at Watchland? Uh, <laughs> it's too early to say. It's too early to say. <laughs> What's your experience of Frank Mueller? I, I like Frank Mueller as I think he says they have uh, fantastic watch substance like, like, like Ariel said. Um, the, the aspect where I'm a bit more sad, I think Frank Mueller is a good illustration it shows how consistency matters for watch brand on the long run because they actually owned this uh, um shaped case uh, silhouette for so many years and at some point they, they, they slowed down and then decreased their attention to the market and richard mill actually sneaked in and from my perspective now rm owns that shape more than than Frank Miller 
in my opinion. And and, and it happened to many other brands. Uh, I can talk, for example, for Breitling. Uh, in the 80s, Breitling was moving more chronomats than Rolex was moving Daytonas. Mm-hmm. And because we we didn't work enough on, on 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 this icon of the brand, it slowed down, and now we have to play catch up and sweat twice as harder to to get back on the game. And I think that's the, the same position that Frank Miller is in at the moment. Am I the only one to think that they, they got their their DNA kind of extracted from from Richard Miller? Well, they went they went into sort of a hibernation mode. They communicated, they invested in markets, and then they stopped. And I mean, we can all speculate as to what their actual business motivations are and how they make money and things like that. But it's not. I don't think it represents a straightforward company with a bunch of businessmen at the at the you know at the helm you know trying to you know authentically grow um grow a business across the world i think there's a lot of other weird things going on as is the case in many high end brands that we don't understand uh but i guess if you're in that little world and you you know you, you find where their watches are and they do speak to you they they continue to make some great things and i think what what's interesting about it is that you don't need to be a superpower brand to be truly innovative. They put like pretty much all their eggs in the basket of making interesting, cr- crazy watches. I, again, most of these I've never even seen in the wild, so I don't know if they all actually get made. But they're just like, we're not going to talk about Frank Muller. We're just going to make crazy watches for the people who are buying here right now and wait for the world to sort itself out. That's like kind of what I see their strategy being. David? Well, uh, I'm not sure what else I could add. I think everything's been said about Frank Muller that's worth listening to. (laughs) (laughs) If you missed last week's Spending Time podcast, then this is what you missed. We showed these brands how to do it. We were the originators of the pre-owned market, and they saw how successful it was and wanted a piece of it. We have that digital customer. I know that uh, Rolex is doing this within retail stores. That's not going to reach all of the customers. There's a lot of brands that could explore this program through eBay, and it will help them to increase the pace of launching a certified pre-owned program. It's suggesting the RRP is £21,000. You're saving 12%. To be honest, it's a bargain. If I had kind of money, that kind of money for a watch, I would maybe consider getting this. Oh. No, okay. I wouldn't. That's a lie. <laughs> I thought about it for a minute and then realised I would Changed wouldn't. your mind. Yeah. But I still, I still like it as a watch, and I think it tells the time. It's very simple. It's very minimalist. But it looks a little different. It kind of looks like a squint snowman running up a hill. And you would certainly wear it. I really would. But there you go. Sometimes people have what we call a collector's crisis and they decide to really make a U-turn and say, oh, I'm going to get rid of 50 pieces and buy just three, four. And that's also uh, those kind of discussions that happen behind the scene of the auction world. It's, it's people totally redefining their roadmap and their priorities and realizing that owning over 200 watches is a complete i mean you need to have a team behind you need to maintain you need to store you need to it's it's a physical asset treasure management so if you don't want to miss out again then subscribe to the spending time podcast now on your favorite podcast player the review that ariel has made on this peacock climber tourbillon is worth a chat uh, first of all because of the watch itself but more because it is, I think, 100% out of China. And I want to posit the question that this is now Chinese watchmaking starting to do stuff that appeals directly to the European market. Has the Swiss watch industry sowed the seeds of its own demise? Okay, it's not going to come to an end in the next 50 years or anything, but are we gradually seeing the Chinese market catch on? They know how to do these things because a lot of Swiss companies have paid people in China to do it. And finally, the skill sets are spreading, resulting in a watch like this Peacock. Ariel, you've seen this in the flesh. Does it stand up to to scrutiny? The Chinese are never going to do what the Europeans do at their very best. But again, the cost differential is, is very, very wide. I think that the the right thing to say is that if the Swiss are no longer as the leader in the space, they need to do better. 
Um, if it's a game of cat and mouse and they need to keep the game going, uh, there is a tendency to be complacent. There's a tendency to sort of do the same thing over and over again. And I think that competition from the East, so to say, only helps the companies stay on their toes. This is what happened in the United States with the automotive industry that was very complacent. And then you had Japanese cars coming in and, and, and it improved everything across the board. It brought prices to a good place. It made sure that good features were being standardized. And I think it was overall a good idea. So I'm not threatened by this. I think that there's, of course, limitations to um, what you get in a, a Chinese tourbillon, for example, versus um, uh, you know, a, a European one. At the same time, if you just want a tourbillon and think it's fun, you don't need to spend a crazy amount. And in, in just the years that I've been doing this, since I've been writing about Chinese tourbillons that really haven't changed in price, they've just gotten better for about the same price, to be honest. The Swiss have accordingly toned down their tourbillon prices significantly. And now you can get through Bayad a Swiss made tourbillon for like, I think it's like about, about you know, just over $5,000 like that, like totally Swiss made, you know, no, uh, really no Asian parts in the movement, things like that. And that is um, after a few years where Tag Heuer came out with there, I think it was the, the entry level price was about 15 or 16,000 Swiss francs for, for the, for their tourbillon chronograph, which was great. Uh, they don't have the, the hand finishing that you might expect in a more finely made thing. But um, I, I, I think it's only a good thing. Uh, this company that we wrote about Peacock has been around in, in China for quite a long time. And uh, I've seen a lot of their watches, you know, especially in China and they're cool. And there's really no reason why enthusiasts couldn't like not all, but definitely some other watches in the West. But are we seeing the Swiss watch world getting less proud of being Swiss? You think of brands like Moser and Orage who, who have absolute right to put Swiss made on their watches, but don't. While at the same time, the Chinese are now starting to put China made on it. And that's seen as being a good thing rather than like, you know, something you wouldn't buy because it infers that it's cheaper and not as high a quality for whatever reason. I mean, look, if there's a perception out there in the market, you can sell against it. If somebody believes that something made in Switzerland is good, you can sell against it. If somebody out there believes that something made in China is good, you can sell against it. At the end of the day, People want a high-quality product. I don't care where a watch is made. Uh, I want something to be made very well, but I know what to look for. So I think that if you know what to look for, product origination doesn't matter as much. If you are um, uh, unclear, then you know you look to your peers, and I guess there's still more people saying made in Switzerland is better than, than this or that. But these these are changing, and of course we've had you know made in Germany, for example, which has uh, undergone a lot. You know, made in America, uh, right now very universally loved. For a long time, you didn't want a lot of the things made in America. So these these change with the mood. Sylvan, you've obviously been shopping around, looking at manufacturers in Switzerland, etc., uh, for your own watch. But you must be aware of the other countries that can also do uh, work for you. Are you seeing? A difference in the quality or is the quality becoming increasingly close between what can be done in a small scale in Switzerland versus what's done in an industrial scale elsewhere? So I am very much aware of, of uh, how much the manufacturing is evolving at the, in, the, in Asia because I'm being harassed on LinkedIn by every <laughs> other prototyping and manufacturing managers that, that can be through my Breitling role to, to get them some business. Mm -hmm. For the record, 100% uh, of our cases and movements and hands and dies for Breitling are made in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. We produce some glass in Asia because we still have in Korea the world experts uh, when it comes to synthetic sapphire. So this is why we go there. But the rest of the Breitling components are made in Switzerland, which sometimes make me cry because when I have to fight against my, my uh, concurrence uh, in terms of pricing, I start with a huge disadvantage because it is more expensive. But at the same time, I think it's a great trait a great um, aspect of Breitling and, and we are very proud to be able to achieve hundreds of thousands of watches made in Switzerland. Nonetheless, the manufacturing uh, in Asia is very strong, very well made. I have some friends who work with these guys uh, and I can testify the quality 
is 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 uh, perfect. I mean, it, it's well done to some specs. But for example, for my project, uh, I produce all my comp my personal project. I produce all my components in the Canton of Neuchâtel, not because I'm being snobby, but because uh, to me, creating a, a business in the 21st century should have local supply to limit the uh, environment in uh, environmental uh, impact. I don't want to. I find it stupid to ship hands and dyes and, and small components uh, through a cargo plane when I could just give my money to my neighbor so that he could make the path for me. Uh, this is more why I stay very local. And then, and then in terms of pure uh, quality of craftsmanship, a CNC machine is the same in Switzerland and the same in, in Shenzhen, for example. So if you program it well and you have that knowledge, you can achieve the same result where it becomes, and that's what I mentioned, where it becomes trickier is when you need the incremental knowledge and experience of five generations of craftsmen that have actually passed on their knowledge to the next generation to achieve hand engraving, enameling, uh, hand polishing, hand finishing. Uh, we see the rise thanks to the independence of these um, hand decorators and engravers that now get to to go famous you see new independence for example my, my friend simon brett mm -hmm. is heavily advertising the suppliers he work with to to show the craftsmanship and and, and this you can also achieve this in asia but you need to to go 50 years or 100 years at it before you can get to the same level because there is no shortcuts. In order to have that level of manufacturing, you have to, to break components and to do it uh, a thousand times before you can get it right. David, how much do you care whether it says Swiss made, Chinese made, or doesn't say anything at all on the dial? Uh, well, I have my reservations, but it, it goes both ways. Um, you know, a lot of stuff says Swiss made on it when in fact much of the, the watch is actually uh originating from asia you know you can have a swiss made watch for a swiss made labeled watch for a couple hundred pounds basically or dollars that has a chinese case chinese dial chinese movement chinese strap chinese box chinese crystal everything else and yet it will say swiss made on it i know it because i've i've encountered these watches i speak i've spoken with the uh, technical directors behind these things and uh, and yeah I, I've seen the whole thing and it's it's online you can go up there and you can buy the same watch labeled as Swiss made and you can buy the exact same skeleton watch from this brand for I don't know $80 or $100 less uh, and it doesn't say Swiss made on it and yes the balance wheel is different or some some minor component is actually replaced in Switzerland to uh, to um uh, pass uh, the regulations but you still everything basically everything you're looking at and you're touching and you interact with on that watch is is made in china and yet the dial says this made on it so again reservations both ways i feel like uh you know i would just add to what Sylvan said about um you know a cnc machine uh, operating the same way in shenzhen and also in uh in the content of neuchatel um, sure, that's true, but quality control, I think, is, is, is a big deal. And, you know, machines make mistakes, people make mistakes, and how strictly you control quality and, you know, how low you, you allow the bar to go when it comes to picking components and then actually installing them in a watch uh, will go a long way in defining the overall quality and reliability uh, of the product. Ariel, you were on a recent factory tour, manufacturer tour to Tudor, and looking at the photographs, you can see all the CNC machines and all the industrialization, etc. What was your impression? I don't know if you've been to a similar factory overseas, but what's your impression as to the human value that surrounds the operation of these machines? Can you appreciate that these Swiss people or Germans or French who are operating these machines with years of experience are actually bringing something to the table when they're operating the same CNC machine as someone in Saint-Jean province? It's a very interesting discussion. And I think that what David and Sylvain have alluded to is absolutely correct. You can have the same machine, but if you're in a rush because you can't charge as much, you won't be able to do as good of a job. There's nothing about the Swiss culture specifically that allows them to make a better watch than anyone else. But they don't rush and they take more time and 
there's a certain value they have that there's they can't release a watch unless it's absolutely perfect because it reflects on their society. They're told, you come from watchmaking country, and if you're going to go into watchmaking, you need to make sure that your ancestors, ancestors are happy with your work. Whereas I think a lot of the Chinese, while there's, of course, an appreciation for the product, it's a business for them. They're in it to undercut the more expensive people in Europe. And so they both have roles in different ends of the market. They can't apply, by definition, the same amount of time and effort, even if they use the exact same tools. So by definition, the less expensive product is going to have to cut corners because they can't put as much time into it. And therefore, anyone who is in less of a rush will have the edge if they, you know, use that time properly. The other part of the question about uh, Tudor and, and, and the human beings, I, 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 do, I also think it's important to explain that the Tudor manufacturer is not an assembly line in the sense that like McDonald's is. You don't just have a bunch of machines set up where a relatively unskilled worker could come in and improve things. That's not what they've done and that's not what most watch manufacturers are. The automation and the technology is designed to speed up the process of moving parts around. It's all done so that humans can maximize their time on the hard part, which is carefully assembling that bit or checking the dial for dust or something like that and not, you know, ch checking off a mark somewhere, not lifting a tray and walking it across the room, all the things that stop them from the actual watchmaking. That's what the technology does. It's meant to speed up humans. It's not meant to replace them. Well, we're coming to the close of our show. However, a, a, a PR flash has just dropped in. I've just forwarded it to Sylvan. And this is the Seiko Astron GPS Solar Resident Evil Death Island Collaboration Limited Edition. Death so Island! Yay! So it's time to play, and this is going to be a remarkable way to play this game. It's time to play Guess the Price of the Seiko. And you know why it's going to be because It's going to be remarkable because nowhere on this press release or even on the website can I find what the price of these two watches is. <sighs> so we're going to guess, and we'll answer the question next week. So if you have a look at your press releases, I've forwarded it to you, Sylvan. This is a Seiko Astron limited edition. There's 600 each of them. Caliber 5X53. I have no idea what that means, but it's a nice looking watch. There's two of them. I will accept one price. So just assume that they're the same price. I have no idea if they are. One's got a bracelet, one's got a strap. And whoever's closest to the average wins next week. So Ariel, guess the price of the Resident Evil Death Island Seiko Astron. Oh, wow. Um, $2,600. We have $2,600 from Ariel. David? I will go with thirty-two fifty. <laughs> $3,250. Okay. <laughs> Sylvan, higher or lower? Higher than $3,250 or lower than $2,600? Uh, ah, okay. Just for the risk, I'll go $1,600. 1600 Just so we have a white bracket of, okay of bets then i will go higher i will go i will cheat and i will go 3251 no so that's I'm exactly not... <laughs> one higher than i oh, geez. one higher than <laughs> and me we will see mm. <laughs> one higher than you sorry yes one higher than david so we will see who is closest it's a nice looking watch but the press release the micro website, I can't see anywhere where it tells you what the price of this watch is. Maybe they're embarrassed, or maybe... We were laughing that the, the movie that it's associated with, which I guess looks cool, even though it's called Death Island, isn't even has a plan for release out of Japan. Like, why would they jump the gun on this? What is the rush to announce the watch that you can't even see the movie it's associated with right now, most in most of the world? I suppose it's possible that they're waiting for us to help them decide what the price of the watch should be, you know? And we, we are being very helpful. Everybody going a thousand of different... <laughs> it depends on the movie, let's be honest. If it's a good movie with a good integration, okay, so you increase the price a little bit. If it's got nothing to do with the movie, then, you know... 
Great stuff. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. Do check out everything that a blog to watch has to offer on the website, on the Superlative Podcast. Check out the Spending Time channel where we have Mozart, more from the Watchlist Girls, and we have an interview with Carlos from Bell and Ross done at Watch Runners, which is actually a really fun interview. So do check that out. Sylvan, when can we expect well, what are you what are you working on at the moment that you can tell us about? Uh, Brightling wise, we are working on, on new collections. Uh, we're going to have another big release uh, in the summer. And I'm currently working for 25, 26, more 26. Uh, and Bernard wise, as I said, I'm, I'm finalizing my tooling, freezing the design. And, and it's the moment where I have to be brave, commit, send the money, order the components, and pray that everything goes well. Well, we will offer up prayers yes. on your behalf. Ariel, what are you up to this week? Got watches to shoot and preparing for a couple of trips, including going to the um, the wind up fair in San Francisco. So I'm going to be seeing a lot of independent brands. I did a I did a social event here in Los Angeles over the weekend where um, met with a bunch of watch people that were trying to do like a watch swap event, which I thought was interesting because I've tried to do stuff like that before. So I'm interested to see a little bit about how. The um the these in person watch groups uh, are going to evolve over the next couple of years. I'm, I mean that's an, an, another story I'm tracking, so to say. Good stuff. And David, what's the next week hold for you? Uh, shooting watches and also uh, organizing trips. Uh, May and uh, and June are looking pretty busy, so we have to just figure all that out. Good, good, excellent. Well, thank you all for joining us and listening in this week. We do hope you will join us again next week. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Thank you, everybody. Have a good day. Thank Ciao. you for listening. Bye-bye.